Chapter 36 The religion of hell is patriotism, and the government is an enlightened democracy. James Branch Cabell, Yogan, 1919 Left, right, left, right, left, right. A column of military personnel marches through the airport, and civilians scurry out of the way. Sitting against a wall, I pull my boots back and make room. Babette's flight from France has been delayed several times, but now, 16 days after 9-11, she returns to a different America. Everyone is extremely tense. Security operatives don't bother disguising suspicious gazes as I turn pages in a 19th century Octave Fulet novel, every paragraph or so scanning for my professor at the gate. Finally, Babette's bushy wig appears, moving unexpectedly fast atop her head in a wheelchair, neck bent as she chatters with the young woman, pushing behind. I slam my books shut and jump up to trot beside them. Babette beams at me, then signals halt. I take her hand. The fingers are chilly, but press back. Thanks. I can handle things now, I tell the woman. She nods gratefully and pats Babette's shoulder. You take care now, she says, and turns away. Thanks so much for your help, calls my professor. Then her eyes meet mine with a warm smile. Oh, Ross, what is that you were reading? Fulet? Oh, Monsieur de Camors is his masterpiece. A pure, tragic genius. But what about Sartre? It tortures me nausea, still gathers dust in the library. Glad to see you, too. Don't worry, I'll tackle nausea eventually. How was the flight? Are you okay? Uh, yes, this machine seems a bit dramatic, but I am fine. Splendid, in fact. You see, at my age, any mention of ill health brings such attention. Not because people care about elders, but through horror that I might drop dead on their watch. Attendants hurried me off the plane so fast, my wig nearly flew away. Please, I would rather walk, not be pambulated like some invalid. Babette rises, a little shakily. She moves stiffly, but soon walks alongside me, keeping pace with little difficulty. I abandon the wheelchair against a wall. We ride an escalator down and locate her baggage carousel. It slowly rotates, still empty. Anxious passengers gather in small groups, watching closely. Another group of uniformed men march down the terminal past us. Quite a time to visit Europe, I observe. Babette shakes her head. Americans, they have been so isolated from tragedy, even a small taste feels like civilization is ending. Ross, do you know the significance of September 11th in history? I nod. Yeah, it's when the U.S. helped put your Chilean friend General Pinochet in power. That was 1973, right? It's driving all my political friends crazy lately. My professor chuckles. Correct. I will not reopen arguments where we disagree. However, what roils my mind is September 11th, 1944. On that date, British airplanes incinerated a German town called Darmstadt with phosphor bombs. Over 10,000 people burned alive. There was no particular military necessity. 
Then, remember, Darmstadt was only one of many cities destroyed this way. But you know, despite other hardships, I doubt survivors expressed such ridiculous hand-wringing as Americans do today. It is all I've seen in France, on the news. They ask, why, why, why? God, it drives me mad. How many decades have I taught history? But people here still feel nothing from the past affects them. They ask why, and no one gives them an answer. Well... In Europe, where everyone understands the repercussions of empire, there is no mystery. But Americans are completely lost. For a public educator my entire life, I find it hard not taking this tragic spectacle as personal failure. Perhaps it is I who sought to grasp the moon with my teeth. One thing is clear. We are in for a long, dark night. Of course, when I say we, I mean you. I will be dead. <laughs> She laughs loudly. Well, don't some people have all the luck, I retort. Are you sure this is the right carousel? Oh, uh, yours, I believe so. Look out for my plaid suitcase. Don't worry, I remember it. Babette sighs. Oh, alas, fretting is useless. If Maya's teaching did good or ill, little can change it now. Oh, but look, there comes my luggage. You know, it is so useful having plaid things. Everyone can tell what you seek, no matter the color. Please fetch it and let us be gone from this place. We drive home, and my professor immediately collapses, exhausted, into bed. The new school year begins with a full load of history classes at Portland State and Babette's Saturday morning tours. Despite a tight schedule, I still manage the occasional night with Zoya. Bonnie Church often calls from Canada, and my professor spends much time on the telephone, speaking with her in hushed tones. Around mid-December, I am sorting mail in the kitchen when Babette comes downstairs, face pensive and maroon bathrobe hanging open. She sits across from me, at the table. Uh, Ross, have you a moment? Certainly. I pass over several letters and bills. She frowns, pushing them aside. It is my daughters. They wish me to spend Christmas with them, but such times are never pleasant for me. I know your family celebrates the holidays. Do you think I might visit Seattle with you this year? I consider her request for a moment, then reply slowly. My parents would agree, if I asked. Babette brightens. However, I continue, you must be on good behavior. She nods. Not only. At this I can't help but laugh. <laughs> That's what I'm afraid of. Your nature. I mean extremely good behavior. We attend midnight services on Christmas Eve, spend the next day with my grandparents, and it's very traditional. No religious debates, no shocking people, and I would also appreciate if you kept your clothes on the whole time. Babette flings up both hands in protest, then firmly ties the sash of her robe in a bow. I really find such admonishments unnecessary. Perhaps you have believed some vicious rumors. I grin, but my eyes narrow. Don't cause trouble for me. I mean it. On December 23rd, we ride Amtrak north together, though Babette plans on returning alone while I stay a few days longer. With unprecedented deference, my professor keeps most inappropriate comments to herself over the holidays, and at other times, only a sharp glare brings her in line. The day after Christmas, I borrow my parents' Jetta and drive Babette to the train station downtown. She sits silently beside me, lips thin and tight. It's a blustery day and rain whips across the windshield. I pull up to the terminal and unload her luggage. 
Babette still waits, frozen in place, until I tap on the passenger window. She frowns, climbs out, and adjusts a thick red scarf around her neck. I extend the handle on her plaid rolling suitcase. My professor reaches for it, then lets her arm drop limp. Do you need help inside? I look into her face. She stares back vacantly through water-spattered glasses. With your bag? I prod. Can you pull it alone? Oh, that. Yes, I will be fine. Her one focused eye tracks mine, then looks away. Are you okay? She clutches my arm, mouth trembling. Do you know, when you first moved into my house, I would test you? I left money around, obvious places, and then waited in hopes you might take it or steal from me in other ways. I never detected any such thing. Can you imagine how infuriating that was? Living with someone I could find no advantage over. She takes a breath. <sighs> oh, it nearly killed me. But despite it all, these last years, I really have become quite fond of you. I will even admit that... I love you. Oh. I move forward and wrap my arms around her broad torso. I love you too. It is the first time we have ever held one another. She smells of medical ointment and damp wool. I squeeze tightly, then release her, but the single eye still stares deeply into mine. Babette looks lost and a little scared. You'll be fine, I say putting my hand on her shoulder. In just a couple days, I'll be back in Portland. You can humiliate me with Scrabble every night. At last, she smiles. Yes, <laughs> we shall do just that. Goodbye for now, dear Ross. She turns, and I watch her slowly drag the plaid suitcase through an automatic door into the terminal.